Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasselina. This time we will go to the Horn of Africa, uh, where I will be speaking with uh, Dr. Stephen Blank once again. This is another uh, podcast in the series with our interviews with Dr. Stephen Blank. This time, Dr. Theodore Karazik will be joining us. Um, and our subject, of course, moves us over to another geographic zone. Uh, Dr. Theodore Karazik is currently a fellow in Russia and Middle East Affairs at the Jamestown Foundation and is senior advisor to Gulf State Analytics. He's also an adjunct uh, senior fellow at the Lexington Institute, all located in Washington, D.C. He is the co-author of Russia in the Middle East, published in 2018. And of course, I'll just go ahead and introduce Dr. Stephen Blank, who you're getting to know already. Uh, Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He is also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. I do hope you will enjoy this new episode. Good afternoon and, and welcome uh, to my very distinguished panelists today in this conference, uh, a new conference. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Blank and Dr. Theodore Karazik. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> good morning, good afternoon. It's good to see both of you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right, what I would like to do, a gentleman, is I'd like to read a very short uh, biography and more complete biographies are available on the taga.com website. Um, and so you'll find out more about our speakers today. But in the interim, I would just like to um, introduce Dr. Theodor Karazik, who is currently a fellow, Russia and Middle East Affairs at the Jamestown Foundation and a senior advisor to Gulf State Analytics. He is also an adjunct senior fellow at the Lexicon Institute, all located in Washington, D.C. He is the co-author of Russia in the Middle East, published in 2018. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He is also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Thank you. Good to see, good to see you again. <laughs> I'm very pleased that both of you could join me. 
on this very important subject. Uh, the title of this course, this uh, discussion is the Horn of Africa Gateway to Geostrategic Power Rivalries. Now, uh, I'd, I'd like to just make a very brief introduction uh, to the subject. And I hear and I'm quoting uh, Dr. Karazik uh, as, as follows. Moscow makes no secret of its ambition to influence African countries in ways against U.S. interests, but that benefit Abu Dhabi. Moreover, Moscow's African interventions may also stem from a sense that China was not only outstripping Russia here, so that Russia is facing the threat of being marginalized if it did not act soon. Russia, seeing opportunity, is continuing to build its relationship with Egypt power projection into Africa's Sahel and Chad-like regions. This fact gives Russia a jump on China in terms of the strategic reach in this part of Africa. However, the shifting tide of geopolitics means that the orbit of Russia and China with the UAE shifts over time. Russia is trying to keep pace with the US. Russia appears to have the weight to counter the US, but it does not want to position itself against the US and perhaps this move enhances its role of the UAE as a type of stabilizer in the regional power equation. Russia signing of basing contracts in Sudan is a geopolitical move only made possible by strong Emirati support from Moscow's client, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmad. Russia and Ethiopia signed a nuclear energy agreement in early December 2020. In other words, if Russia can gain foothold, it can shadow or spoil Chinese efforts to develop control and that enhances its image as an ally of Beijing. China's presence, Djibouti, still keeps Beijing in the thick of maritime security operations, but also increasingly include Yemen at the expense of the UAE. In the near term, UAE is signaling that its engagement with Africa is here to stay and using both Russia and China to their advantage while credit for the Ethiopia-Eritrea deal lies primarily with the UAE, Abu Dhabi is playing an important role in helping push initial st steps of a rapprochement that could be significant across the horn. The UAE uses its merchant-driven essence to negotiate more port access, but increasing the presence of Abu Dhabi ports as part of a distribution of COVID-19-related aid packages out of the global hub being established by the Khalifa Industrial Zone, known as the Kizad. China investment in Kizad operations is now over $1 billion. Clearly, competition remains a primary driver. Results will almost certainly be mixed depending on both Moscow and Beijing's own perceptions. In some places in Africa, and especially in the Horn, the UAE may still help bridge divides. This behavior can lead to PC competition, which puts the Horn of Africa governments in a bind. So is it time, gentlemen, for a Red Sea policy, as suggested by an article written on May 1st, 2019, on the Danish Institute of International Studies website by Jessica Larson and Finn Steptuta. And I quote, yet the question of security in the Red Sea is much more diverse and diver deserves tension in its own right. Landward, the Red Sea is bordered by the Horn of Africa to the west and the Arabian Gulf to the east, both volatile regions that host different varieties of political instability and economic inequality. Seaward, 
The Red Sea, a connecting waterway to the Western Indian Ocean, has indeed been affected by piracy, but also by maritime terrorism, irregular migration, drug smuggling, and illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. An additional factor is currently shaping the security in the Red Sea region, namely states in the Gulf Corporation Council in the GCC, increasingly partnering with authorities in the Horn of Africa to provide long-term investments in critical infrastructure. This promises to create competition in the Horn, thus influencing its already volatile power dynamics. Now, the COVID pandemic, as you're well aware, has forced many petrol-based economies to look to diversify their economies in the strategic geographic intersection where most of the petrol of the world is exported. So where are the GCC states active in the Horn and where do the Danish authors see areas of competition? And I'd just like to throw these in before our questions to our speakers. They suggest that driving economic development through investment in ports, manufacturing, and other economic sectors, influencing the security situation through military training and the establishment of military bases, and finally, by shaping regional politics by supporting peace talks between adversaries among the Horn states. So, gentlemen, I have a number of questions for you, and I know you're you're going to share, uh, give us insight and your expertise on these subjects. So I'll start with the first question. Could you talk to us briefly about the effect of the Abraham Accords uh, at, that it has, has and will have on the region, the end of the blockade on Qatar and Morocco and others uh, recognizing Israel? Who would like to start? I will. Well, I'll, 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 I'll go, <laughs> go ahead. Um, right. Stephen, go ahead. Uh, Sudan also now is negotiating to recognize Israel. And it is clearly sensitive to the economic, strategic and political benefits of signing up to these accords, because it is also simultaneously uh, was or was dealing with the Trump administration, and presumably this is carried over into the Biden administration, to be uh, let off the list of state sponsoring terrorists so they could qualify for US assistance. Uh, so the economic assistance, the desire for investment, and trade within the region is clearly driving the local government's policies here, uh, among other things. Now, from the point of the UAE, which is a party to the Abraham Accords, and from Israel's point of view, opening mm -hmm. up relations in uh, the Horn of Africa strengthens their political, diplomatic, and economic positions as well. So you have an interactive regional and local process going on uh, uh, as we'll see in the course of the later discussion, great mm -hmm. powers are also deeply involved here. And these things interact. The example of Sudan trying to get more economic assistance from the United States is just one example of many of the kinds of complex relationships that you can find here. Ted? Very good, thank you. Um, in my mind, uh, the Abraham Accords have uh, shifted the geopolitical and geoeconomic nature of the region uh, in a completely new direction uh, that uh, puts UAE or rather Abu Dhabi and uh, Israel together on several projects involving the Horn and deeper into Africa. 
the important point here, which is what Stephen brought up, was Sudan and what happens with Sudan in terms of that Israeli arrangement with them. It's also to be noted, of course, that even before the Abraham Accords, you had Israeli involvement in and around the Horn already. But what the normalization has done is formalize those types of relationships so that they don't have to be so much behind the scenes as being out in front. Um, this is why you begin to see uh, the reporting about um, Emiratis and Israelis working together in particular locations in around the Horn. I think there's a very good example with potentially with Socotra, uh Island uh, within the uh, Bab al-Mandab, but also with a uh, permanent base uh, that is being built out now. Uh, so these, the ability for uh, Israel and UAE, or rather Abu Dhabi, to coordinate geopolitically throughout the region against what they perceive to be their common enemy, in this particular case, Iran, uh, at this juncture, this is what drives them together in order to pepper, if you will, the uh, Red Sea and the BAM uh, for maritime security affairs. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, uh, both of you. So uh, my next question then, um, and, and you've partly, partly answered it, uh, was the blockade intended, uh, I'm sorry, was the blockade indeed an opportunity for the UAE to advance and solidify its position in the Horn? You, you partially answered it, I believe. The Abraham Accord uh, and also you have to combine it really with the summit in Aula uh, earlier this year. Uh, the issue is, is that um, with the Aula agreement, it shifted the nature of the Gulf states relationship really back to what it was before, which are a series of city states that compete with each other. Uh, and that competition has bubbled out from the Gulf into other parts of the world. And the Horn mm -hmm. is just one of them. Now, this phenomenon is not new. Uh, it's been ongoing for you know, dozens of years. Uh, but the point is, is that in this day of age, when it occurs after Aula, after the dropping of the blockade, you have five city-states, if you will, who are competing over the riches of this horn. And what mm -hmm. they see is the best way forward for those countries on based on their viewpoint and investment patterns as opposed to maybe European or Eastern, i.e. Chinese or Russian values that you might find there. However, having said that, the Gulf states do have an ability to use the larger peer powers to their advantage, and that gets into a case-by-case -case basis. And I think really the, the one that really stands out here is the history of Mogadishu, and we have an election that's supposed to be coming up and this is contested very sharply by clans on the ground that are being influenced by various golf players 
So this is part of that ongoing Paus Aula summit environment, but on the Horn of Africa. Stephen? Well, uh, it's hard to build on what Ted has just said, but uh, <laughs> I agree. I agree. With, uh, he's extremely knowledgeable about it. But what you are seeing is a, is a broader process. You know, years ago, uh, when everybody was worried about the Middle East being the cockpit of World War III and because the great powers were driving things, that's gone. I mean, the great powers are still playing their games and maneuvering for their interests. But uh, as much, if not more, than great powers, what you now have are the local actors who are fully-fledged states and powers in their own right making all kinds of deals, arrangements, agreements, uh, rivalries with, with possible in the Horn of Africa and in the greater Middle East, the North Africa too, for that matter, uh, the sure. Gulf and so on. So uh, the Abraham Accords just stimulates that process further by which Israel and its treaty partners and Saudi Arabia, who is clearly uh, a, a very active uh, player in all of this, now extend their activities and interests to beyond their immediate territories into the Horn or North Africa and so on, and begin to develop their capabilities and foreign interests in a way that had never been possible before. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, going on to the next question then, if I may, refer to the flyer that I prepared for this discussion uh, with so many flags and nations present in the Horn. Can you talk to us about and the importance for a player to have ports or lily pads in the Horn? Mm -hmm. This concept of lily pads and ports and apods and spods and yeah. uh, being able to the chessboard your way around Africa is a very important concept. And we're still seeing the lily pad concept actually by a number of different actors, uh, not only local actors who feel that uh, by devising a system of ports based on a hub and spoke system, around the continent of Africa to include, of course, the Horn of Africa to help landlocked countries bring their product to sea. We're seeing uh, much of this activity now uh, through port development companies like BP World and others coming in to purchase port rights and so on. The lily pad phenomena, though, is I use this a little bit loosely because actually first time I uh, ran into it, was really about discussing about how China uses the UAE as a lily pad to get to Africa, particularly in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a little dated, 90s and 2000s. And that's how China really got involved in East Africa in terms of uh, uh, first with uh, rounds of uh, waves of workers and so on, and then investment patterns and so on. It became a lily pad effect. Now you have a lily pad effect by the local powers who seek to build up their capability to either uh, have power projection either for kinetic purposes, they can have power projection for humanitarian purposes for COVID-19. Sure. COVID-19 is an excellent example 
especially coming out of UAE and how this aid is distributed, but also from Qatar too, because Qatar does the same type of activity. China does the same type of activity as well. China delivers directly to Ethiopia and other countries within Central Africa, if you will. Um, and also, but you have UAE doing the same thing. We have to ask ourselves a fundamental question on that hub scheme. Is this coordinated? Is that in the interest of the powers that be within the region? Yes, obviously it is because they're allowing it, but is it in the interest of Western powers? For example, do Western powers recognize how COVID-19 pushes the geopolitical agenda faster and helps win hearts and minds quicker uh, through particular societal pushes. So when you have the Chinese coming in, they're doing their lily pad one way, the Emiratis are coming in, they're doing it another way. By the way, you'll see with the Chinese, it's more about uh, cultural attributes, of course, but with the Emiratis, you'll hear them do, uh, it depends on the location, but there might be um, a building of a mosque, uh, uh, right. uh, educational outreach, uh, right. group marriages, services. like this, right? Social services. And social yeah. services are a really important driver yes. within understanding the rest of the concept of how these uh, hubs and uh, are used. That's very good. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, did you want to add to that? Yes, because beyond what uh, Ted is, dis is discussing here, and uh, China, of course, has figured in his discussion, there's a great deal of concern, or perhaps rising concern now, about China and Russia using the Middle East as a springboard for their uh, strategic uh, interests. And uh, Mr. Putin is trying to call me right now. And, uh, the, uh, of course. <laughs> call them back. But uh oh, never stops here. Uh, the fact <laughs> of the matter is uh, the Chinese have a, apparently a well-articulated strategy now throughout the entire Indian Ocean, which includes the Gulf, the Middle East, and uh, East Africa and on in sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and the whole African continent as a whole. Yes, I'm talking on Zoom. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm uh, going to uh, Zoom here. So the Chinese are talking uh, with all these actors. They're building bases. They're building ports. They're building energy communications, economic trade, linkages, infrastructure, all of this. Big literature now has come out about this. More recently, it has become clear that the Russians not only want to, as Ted said, want to uh, emulate the Chinese example. Mm -hmm. There are signs of partnership with China, uh, at least uh, with regard to Iran. And second, the Russians in November acquired a base in Sudan which is also going to be used clearly to project power and to develop its influence in the Horn of Africa. Thereafter, other bases in the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea area. And it's also, I believe, clear that they want a larger influence now in the Indian Ocean as a whole. 
So we are talking about several regions which are all contiguous to each other have become the object of a very complex international game involving multiple actors and cross-cutting interests. If right. I may interject here, yes, it's very Jared, important to point out that last week, uh, Sergei Lavrov and Mikhail Bakhlanov, uh, sorry, uh, went to uh, the Gulf uh, to visit uh, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, and Qatar. This was a major visit by the Russian Foreign Ministry to uh, take advantage of a lag in the Biden administration's ability to produce policy. And the Russians were able to secure uh, several agreements on what will be occurring next in several theaters around the region. On top of this very significant visit by Lavrov, it was is the fact that Lavrov then went to China um, and uh, for two days, and now the Chinese foreign minister is doing a tour of the Gulf. Now, back in China, Lavrov and the Chinese uh, uh, came to an agreement that they will be working jointly and strategically from here on out. And on top of that, that they will be coordinating much of their activity financially by actually leaving the uh, SWIFT system. That was one of the things that they announced. That's a very big bifurcation yes, within the global economic system. It's something they've been talking about. And this is now occurring uh, at this juncture. What does this really all mean uh, as the Chinese foreign minister comes and tours the Gulf region is that within those negotiations or those discussions is that the Horn of Africa and Yemen are going to be discussed. Because from that Eastern point of view, if you will, mm -hmm. they see the peninsula and the Horn as one piece. Mm -hmm. I would argue that Western uh, analysts tend to look at the Horn and the peninsula almost as two different pieces sometimes. Right. And the way that you approach this issue by using another culture's lenses helps to illuminate better the way that they're approaching uh, these problems. And now that both China and Russia are in the same page, I would watch out for what happens in Yemen. I would be very cautious about what happens in Ethiopia because of Russia and China's relationship with Ethiopia sure. over time. And on top of that, I would also put um, as well uh, Sudan, Egypt too. All of these states are uh, not susceptible, but are open to uh, this China-Russia push because they see that they can take advantage of that uh, as the West begins to um, try to act uh, more forcefully through the assignment of special envoys and so on. My final line here is that Russia and China recognize the gap in the West. They're taking advantage of it right now. Sure. 
All right, um, let, let's move on because time is getting away from us as well. So, which brings me to my next question. I think that sort of ended it where Stephen ended. And if I may go back to it, can you comment on the Sudan-Egypt summit that took place recently, which is gonna, you've sort of touched on it, and, and the Renaissance Dam? Yes, this is a major issue between Egypt and Ethiopia about the, controlling the waters of the Nile River. The Egyptians want to build a dam, the Ethiopians are opposed, uh, and uh, Sudan is over to mediate. And as a result of that, you have all three of these powers now in a, tri, in a tripartite relationship. Uh, this is a major question of water infrastructure. It's the kind of thing that invites large-scale foreign participation. Let us remember 65 years ago that the Soviet entry into the Middle East was with, in conjunction with the Aswan Dam, yes. uh, as well as arms sales. And arms sales, everybody wants arms all the time. Uh, you may think that it's a giving. Uh, but, you know, Russia uh, or others can come in and say, well, well, you know, we're prepared not only to help mediate this problem, but to help you build something and that will work for everybody and help you know, create the infrastructure necessary. And that is an, a wedge for larger political influence. And in the Russian case, they use the Wagner Group or other private uh, military groups or private corporations ostensibly acting on their own. Yes. As, as, as the sort of lead actor in this, uh, the Chinese, of course, have all these corporations that come in as well that are part of the Chinese government and say, well, we'll build this for you too. So <laughs> there's an opportunity here, which I think on the basis of what Ted has been saying and what you can see about Russia and China cooperating, not just in Iran, but perhaps here as well, but you're going to see some joint projects as well. All right. So that's very good. And which leads me to my next question. And, and again, you've, you've touched on some of these points, but I would just like to bring them up again. Can you talk to us about Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey? rivalry policies in Africa and place it in the context of China's one belt, one road policy or the string of pearls? Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with Turkey because that's not well known in America. I mean, yes. people are writing about China and Russia and Africa. The Turks have a major investment in East Africa as well. They have troops on the ground. They are also building infrastructure, attempting uh, to send specialists there for development mediating or uh, playing sides uh, and supporting governments. In other words, they're, they're doing exactly the same kinds of things Russia and China is. And that's part of the sort of blue homeland ideology of Turkey as a great pivotal regional power that Erdogan is pushing very hard uh, with domestic support uh, to show that, uh, that Turkey can play not only in its immediate neighborhood, but even beyond that, which is Africa. And cut a major figure. So they're attempting to do that to assert themselves as well. To, the degree, to what degree this Turkish policy is specifically targeting Iran is difficult to say. But there uh, are way, you know, multiple uh, lines of interaction here. Russia and China are the two states that Iran most relies on to support it abroad. China, for example, is buying much more Iranian oil now uh, in response to the American pressure. Yes. Russia and China have been supporting Iran in other ways. The Russians have said they're going to support Iran. Uh, 
We may see that in Africa. We may see that in the Middle East as well. Certainly it's true vis-a-vis the US and the JCPOA. Beyond that, last summer, there was this leak of an impending Chinese-Iranian agreement that would lead to bases and so forth. It was probably an attempt by Iran to force China's hand. It failed. But since then, we've heard nothing. And there is no Chinese base in Iran uh, and no smart cities yet. None of this has been ratified. Nevertheless, there is clearly a potential here. Uh, they've already had joint naval exercises, these three states, as a potential to build on for them. And I would not be surprised if they're discussing in Beijing now for Russia and China to come to the assistance of Iran in some discernible way. At the same time, Russia is trying to work with Turkey. China is also uh, investing heavily in Turkey and it is receiving benefits. The Turks have stopped criticizing China's genocide of the Uyghurs in order to get economic assistance from China as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So all of these things are happening all at once uh, and interacting in ways that are incredibly complex. Ted, did you want to say something? Yes, Ted, uh, uh, let me build a little bit on Steve, I think. Um, um, I think what's really important about Turkey is understanding how Turkey got into Somalia in the first place and how they displaced UAE. That was part of the regional struggle between these two countries. Um, Having said that, uh, the Emiratis have been quite clever at beginning to understand their mistakes from the past. Their mistakes from the past, I think, involved not understanding the clan structures on the ground well enough to be able to uh, play with each one of the states of Somalia. This is why you've seen uh, the relationship develop between UAE and Somaliland as a way to begin to undermine Turkish authority in Mogadishu. That has expanded into Puntland and the president of Puntland travels frequently to Abu Dhabi for funding in order to be able to do certain actions on the ground uh, to in this current uh, mess that is occurring in Mogadishu. At the same time, you have uh, uh, activity in Jubaland uh, that is not conducive to keeping the Somali state together. So really what's happening here is that the UAE strikes me as trying to undermine various segments of Somali society in order to force a change in government that would be more friendly to uh, Abu Dhabi and the Emirates as a whole. It should be noted that the latest round of violence in Mogadishu uh, took off the day that uh, Qatar Petroleum signed an agreement with Mogadishu uh, for exploration rights in certain parts of the country and offshore. My final point here, of course, has to deal with Kenya and Jubaland and their international demarcation uh, in regards to uh, where does the border begin and end, particularly in the maritime zones. This is critical because there are many oil and gas tracks off of that coast. Uh, the Emiratis are interested in this. The Qataris are interested in this. Uh, you have Chinese interested in it. 
Uh, there's all kinds of, of regional and foreign interests that are again making the horn a playground for them. And it is okay. Ted, we've sort of lost your connection there, I'm sorry to say, uh, which we're making a very important point. I hope you can come back to us. Um, I'll just go ahead and uh, continue um, with our next uh, question. Yes, Ted, I'm still. Ted, you cut out there for a minute. You're making a very important point, and I'm sorry we, we missed it. Can Are you back with us now? Yeah. come back on okay Stephen let's continue then um, the questions that um, we're, we're also on our agenda and we still have some time left uh, how how has Russian Russia's tactics evolved in the MENA region over the last two years and what new tools do you see being used we sort of touched on some of this but I thought you would be in a good place to, to d develop this a little bit further for us I think in the last to four years actually you see this enormous russian advance into africa mm -hmm. now they were already looking at africa before the invasion of ukraine but the invasion of ukraine the sanctions forced as well as chinese presence in africa forced right. them and maybe chinese advice to them to get involved in africa to uh uh look more seriously at africa as a trading partner but they're not only interested in trade what they're really interested in is the influence and long-term presence and military at the same time if you look at their naval activity more than what the more than what's written in their doctrines but in their activity deployments and so on they are interested in projecting power using sure. where possible the navy the wagner group as a excuse me, as a private formation energy and trade where they're able to do so the state-to-state um, -state investment and arms sales uh, all of those are the instruments not only what some american announced would call hybrid war but also of the overall russian national security policy with a view to obtaining influence and power projection into other areas. The Indian Ocean is, is very important here because it's clear uh, to a number of us that the Navy wants to be able to have permanent influence in the Indian Ocean. You know, in the past, they have talked about a base in, uh, in the Seychelles, uh, in Cameron Bay, which would lead into the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean from the east. Um, I think that their connections with Myanmar, for example, might point them in that direction because Shoigu, the defense minister, was in Myanmar a week before the coup. And the agreements he negotiated there were the same agreements that they have negotiated in Sudan. They, you know, they look alike. Uh, and we know what, what has come out of Sudan. So um, I think what you're seeing here is the Russian belief that having successfully projected power into Syria, and establish them their bona fides as a major actor in the Middle East now, who cannot be dislodged at all easily. 
they, their appetite as the French has grown with the eating. Appetit vient en mangeant. They now want to be able to project power into the Indian Ocean. When you take that with the alliance that I think is the case with China and what the Chinese are doing in the, in the ocean, uh, you see why some people, for example, in the United States are now calling for a first fleet that would be based in the Indian Ocean and why the Biden administration has quickly made out which is to India. All these things are connected. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Ted, I, I'm so if glad you're I back may, with us again. Yeah, um, thank you. I apologize. Yes, uh, please. A little internet drop there. No, here. no, no worries. Uh, I'm glad you could thank, come back. It's great. Thank you. Uh, let me just please. add here about the quad. I think that's what obviously Steve is talking about. The quad is a fascinating uh, concept for strategic projection, and, which involves a whole group of maritime interests uh, all heading out for the Indo-Pacific region. And um, what's interesting about that is, of course, that France is involved in this power projection into uh, the Pacific. And that uh, what's happening, too, is that there is the development, if you will, of a string of ports for them to use as well that moves all the way across that uh, expansive ocean from the Red from the Horn all the way out <laughs> and around uh, to the Pacific Theater. And this is very significant move because it, it appears that, of course, with this doctrine, the Indo-Pacific doctrine that we're moving, the West is moving into the Pacific region, which allows a deep drive down by China and Russia into the Horn. And because they want to lock up that area to prevent quad related type transit. The, the, the future of warfare may very well be on water as opposed to on land or other aspects of the warfare uh, spectrum. Um, I should point out here that Oman is destined to become a major stop for the quad uh, between uh, uh, certain points. This goes to the point also that Steve was bringing up before about Myanmar as a port for Chinese interest and so on. So when we were talking earlier about hubs and so on for ports yes. and access and bunkers, you have all these countries trying to formulate this whole new maritime infrastructure, it seems. And when you come back to the Horn, the entire idea of the Horn is what, from the perspective of these countries? It's for extraction. It's to extract uh, rare earth minerals, gold, diamonds, etc., and to bring it to market. So this is where our future lies in this strategic and tactical environment is really perhaps maybe a struggle over mercantilist or neo-mercantilist uh, ideas, right? But very, over very, wide very, expenses of land. It's fascinating. Very, very interesting, in, in fact. And what we're seeing too is I, I've been studying the, you know, the region and, and different ideas and 
how our shift has been more or less um, theoretical or ideological and has become more geoeconomic uh, in, in interest. Uh, I'm sure both of you would agree. Uh, let's move on then to uh, the next question. And we may want to stop after this question, which is a big question. And, and we've touched a little bit on it, but I'd just like to wrap this up a little bit. So how do Gulf countries then help or hinder Moscow's activity now in the MENA? Because while you were not with us, Ted, I asked uh, one of the first questions that was on the list, um, you know, how has Russian tactics evolved in the MENA? And mm -hmm. what is the role of the UAE specifically? And we sort of touched on that. Is it important mm -hmm. to think of the UAE as, as seven countries in terms of their relationship with Africa specifically? the Horn and Sub-Saharan Africa. We've sort of touched on that. Uh, and what are the relationships that we should be watching? Uh, as you rightly pointed out, I believe earlier, Abu Dhabi versus Dubai versus Sharjah uh, as mm -hmm. regards to African policy. I'll let both of you weigh on if you would, Ted. Thank you for the question. I could probably go off on this for five hours, but I'll try to make it. No, it's uh, a long one. one. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, basically, what's important to understand here is that uh, Russia has a particular point of view towards the region. Uh, it goes back to the historically driven, you know, historical drive south uh, notion. Um, this was fulfilled in 2007 when Putin visited visited the Gulf. The process has continued to them. Uh, the Emirates have always been part of the Russian space, if you will, or the Soviet space even better, uh, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the many states of the FSU began to look at the Emirates or the rest of the Gulf as what they wanted to emulate. They want to wanted to become shakedoms mm. with oil. They saw mm -hmm. that as a way of a way, a new path forward. And I remember this very clearly in 1993. And it's very important to bring it up to today because many of those patterns matured over time through the uh, Emirates. And so when you're looking at the Emirates and African policy, you have to be able to think about and how it ties into Russia is how these seven emirates, which are really seven different countries, have focused independently or together in particular spots. Now, we have examples of this in Libya. We have examples of this in Somalia. We have examples of this over in perhaps Senegal, Morocco and other places sure. around Africa. But in the Horn, it takes on a, a, a little bit different view because of the history of smuggling from the Horn. The history of smuggling from the Horn, uh, and that was one of the holdups with Sudan getting uh, its uh, sanctions dropped, was because of smuggling outside of uh, you know using large dows, uh, cattle dows or Arabic gum dows and having contraband underneath that was going to Sharjah. This behavior is all have to been stopped now and to convert that behavior into legitimate behavior. And that is what is the attempt here is from their point of view and what U.S. policymakers, I think, are trying to get them to do is to clean up their home act so that they can function as maybe a more normal state 
in Africa itself. It's the Russia question that throws everything off because you have Abu Dhabi doing one thing with Russia, Dubai doing something else with Russia, Sharjah doing a third thing with Russia. And this all has to be tracked by uh, the analysts in order to better understand how it is applied in particular theaters of Africa. One last point here has to deal with, um, with the Sahel and its interaction with the Horn, because these are linked all together now, geopolitically and geoeconomically, given UAE-French relations in the Sahel, and the now a very large push by the Emirates into the Sahel, uh, uh, because they feel, from their point of view, they're looking at an arc of crisis in Africa, and they're supposed to fix it. That arc, that one side lies in the horn, hence their concentration, hence they're asking for Moscow for help because they know that Moscow right now is the big boss in the region. And this is why you have that confluence. I'll stop there. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, it's, it's hard to expand on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some aspect of that you can pick up this even. You have such vast knowledge. Maybe well, the Russian I, I, portion. I, or... I was going to say all this because Ted and I wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, where we said all this. Uh, <laughs> UAE, for example, as we pointed out at that point, was what you might call an enabler, and it was Ted's word at the time, uh, for uh, Russia. It was going around telling people that, yes, you can rely on Russia. Russia's a, a real partner. Uh, what the Russians say they'll do, they'll deliver. The, and if they can't deliver, they'll say so. And, you know, you can trust their word and so on. And that opens doors to the Russians because people get a good impression of them that they're a reliable interlocutor. Interlocutor uh, valable, as they say in French. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm you can work on with them now beyond that what we now have also is on top of all these middle eastern states playing their games and spinning their webs that the chinese and the russians and the americans and the european union or individual members of the eu doing the same in various areas of the middle east uh, and uh you have turkey and iran of course who are not arab states but clearly are projecting influence into this vast region and there is there is already developing a major strategic uh competition india will enhance its role here over time because they feel challenged in that. Sure. and at the same time the flexibility of the multiple actors to make deals and move around and the, the extent of the agenda creates an extremely fluid and dynamic situation of which the Emirates states, uh, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah, uh, UAE, Oman, so on, are all participants. And it is therefore, first of all, kaleidoscopic, in it, if you want an adjective that describes this, and it is essential for governments and analysts to try to keep the, all these uh, players in motion, as it were, uh, watching them and keeping this, all those balls juggling in the air in order to follow what's happening. But what's very clear here is that there is a struggle for power and influence geoeconomically, which then leads to geostrategically. 
uh, energy trade, investment infrastructure, medicine now, and of course, information, uh, building of information infrastructures, corrupting of information infrastructures. Uh, all this is happening. All right. So I'd like to finish off this discussion, but we're almost at the end. Um, perhaps I could ask you both to weigh in on how you see the Biden administration, the new U.S. administration, uh, their policies and positions. Both of you have sort of touched on that. If we could just maybe have some concluding remarks. How do we see U.S. policy going forward? Ted and, and Stephen, please. Uh, U.S. foreign policy right now is moving forward. The issue is, is that there's still transition ongoing. Right. I think that slowed things down. Um, and as I mentioned before, others, the red team watches this all the time. So they're taking sure. advantage of it. It's very clear. But yes. the ideals of the administration is a huge improvement. Uh, and that is noble. Uh, but the, the administration did inherit a lot of issues and now they have to figure them out. Uh, the, the speed at or the op tempo at which events are occurring has struck me that the administration is constantly having to rewrite policy. And uh, that might be an issue that will continue through the rest of the year. Uh, we need to be optimistic that the U.S. administration will stand up taller in April and May uh, because those are going to be key months as we go into the into June, which is a major month, particularly with Iran. So I think the calendar is pretty clear for the administration. I think they've made um, some mistakes in Yemen. Uh, but there is hope on the ground and hope in Muscat and other capitals that things could mm -hmm. move forward, inshallah, and that uh, <laughs> this will help actually part of the issues with the horn. Um, the U.S. administration is appointing special envoy, as Stephen mentioned before. That's a very positive development, but yeah. that's walking into a Cuisinart and uh, that is something that uh, everybody is going to have to be aware of uh, because of the complexities of the ground. But these people are highly well qualified. Uh, it's just playing catch up, I think, and then being able to coordinate with other entities and to avoid the stovepipes of policy. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you. Stephen. Um, I think we can see already some trends manifesting themselves in the Biden administration. I expect. India, in conjunction with the U.S. and for that matter, other members of the Quad and maybe the U.K. and France, playing a much greater role in the Indian Ocean and the Middle East and Africa. Because China is trying to uh, exclude India uh, in the Indian Ocean, Central Asia also for that matter, and uh, Middle East. Uh, I, I think that the administration will come around to supporting the Abraham Accords more fully. Um, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with Iran, which is a major elephant in the room for the United States. The problem is that the flaws of the JCPOA are quite obvious. The new agreement is necessary. Uh, while while this is creating a lot of tension within America, and uh, for that matter, I think among 
groups, factions in Israel and Saudi Arabia. The problem you have with regard to the Iranian issue is, all right, what's your alternative? How do you stop Iran from building a nuclear weapon? And nobody has a, a better answer so far. Going in and doing to Iran what we did in 2003 in Iraq is off the table. Now. Of course. And uh, therefore, you have to find a non-military solution, or one that involves military pressure. Uh, the Biden administration also is conducting, as Ted said, its review of Africa, as I mentioned, as Ted mentioned, uh, this talk of a special envoy for Ethiopia. There needs to be a revived assessment of how important Africa might be to American interests. I think it's more important than is believed in Washington. Uh, and so the tendency to cut back, I think, may not be correct. Or if we're going to cut back, that means our, our allies have to pick up the slack, which is great, mainly Great Britain and France. Right. Um, France is trying to cut back. England, yes. England uh, has not really shown much interest in the Horn of Africa. It's not a traditional area of British interest. No. Although the Gulf is uh, right. very clearly. Uh, you know, the problems in Africa are also intrinsic to the, to the region. Uh, bad misgovernment, bad government, civil wars, ethnic strife, so on. Uh, those have to be addressed. We can help African governments do that, but they have to address it. We can't cure it. And as a result, I, I think what you're going to see is a tendency towards a re repositioning of U.S. foreign policy in all of these regions and greater reliance on other actors like India, possibly European states in, well, in North Africa, maybe in Sahel. And I would hope that there would be a rapprochement with Turkey. Rapprochement with Turkey would solve a lot of problems in the United States, not only in uh, Middle East, Europe too, but it would also, I think, undermine Russian policy in a way that would be constructive uh, for the US. Uh, so we could make progress on Syria and uh, also in, in Africa. Great. All right. We have we have one question that was submitted uh, very early on in in our in our conference, and I just would like to read it. It's from it's from Inanna, and uh, it says, "What is the significance of DFM Bogdanov's recent outreach across North and East Africa versus Lavrov's outreach?" Uh, it's very important to understand within the uh, Russian foreign ministry the differences between the portfolios of these individuals and what they do. Uh, Bogdanov is an old Middle East hand. He knows the region very, very well. He knows all the actors very well on a first name basis. Uh, he was involved in Yemen when it was an independent state. Uh, he has uh, long-term knowledge and he is using that long-term knowledge and those relationships in which to shape local outcomes as opposed to Lavrov who is shaping regional outcomes. So their division of labor is very important. Bakalanov and, of course, Lavrov, but more, uh, 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 more the former, they're Primakovian. 
in their approach to Russian foreign policy in the region. And thus having someone like the deputy foreign minister for, Nor for, for MENA responsible for this topic means that he is the one who is helping to engineer particular parts of Russian foreign policy in communities, let's say like in Libya or Tunisia or Algeria or Egypt, let's just take North Africa, for example, he's able to work out deals where Russians may come in later. I think there are other, just want to add here another factor is that under this type of scheme, if you will, you have other institutions like Ruski Mir, which is about uh, Russian expatriates around the world and having Russian community outreach throughout the world. These are in Africa. It's run by Yevgeny Primakov's son, Yevgeny Primakov Jr. And this okay. is also part of that landscape too, in terms of what, um, of what the deputy foreign minister does. So I think that this is really key to understand. Again, Lavrov up above at the strategic level, maybe you could argue that the other gentleman is more at the tactical and diplomatic uh, negotiate the fine part of the discussions and what to do. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Ted, did, Stephen, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I would add to that that I think that if Bogdanov is, you know, pursuing Russian objectives, they're the same way that uh, Lavrov is, and Lavrov then builds on what Bogdanov has achieved, as Ted has suggested. I think we also ought to be looking, particularly uh, NATO and U.S., maybe uh, NATO and U.S. and local militaries, because the Russians are trying to get more bases here, which would be a major challenge to NATO forces and interests in the Mediterranean. All right. Yeah, I think it's really important if I if I may just really interject very quickly, Please. very important to understand uh, the different entities within the Russian government that are actively pursuing objectives on the ground in places like the Horn or in Africa or Southeast Asia. I agree with Steve 100 percent on Myanmar. This is all part of Russia and uh, this will play out in the coming months. But the idea here is to be able to take a look at all the individuals involved in the diplomatic corps, because of course they're in the lead uh, diplomatically, they're following and they are all working on new tactics for approaching African countries through parliamentarianism, doing cultural outreach, stuff like that. It's very strong because let's not forget, Russia is returning to Africa, not entering. It's a long historical story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Karizik. Thank you, Dr. Stephen Blank. It was a real pleasure uh, discussing these very important issues with you today on the Horn of Africa. Thank you to our guests for joining us. This uh, video conference will be available on Taga's website and will later become a podcast later on in the week that is available on Mediterranean Sustainability Partners podcast on Anchor. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to future discussions with Dr. Stephen Blank and Dr. Karazix. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.